Hi, this is These Unprecedented Times, and I'm Claire Hogan with the Studio for Teaching and Learning Innovation at William & Mary. Over the last six months, there has been a nationwide resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in response to the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other unarmed Black Americans. We've seen calls for police reform, massive fundraising efforts, protests, and more. At William & Mary, the Black Lives Matter movement has taken root with weekly protests. For 26 consecutive weeks, students have gathered around Colonial Williamsburg for a peaceful demonstration. Today, we speak to the head organizer of these protests, Felicia Hayes. My name is Felicia Hayes. Um, I am one of the organizers, kind of the head organizer for the weekly protests um, in Merchant Square every week with protests in and around the William Mary community. Um, I'm a student athlete at the college. And yeah, that's me. (laughs) Awesome. So tell me a little bit about the protests. So when did those start and how did you end up organizing them? Um, These protests began when George Floyd was murdered a couple days after he was. Um, After George Floyd, um, that took place and it was within the news and it was something that was very, um, you, you could see it everywhere. I mean, on TV and on Twitter, like everywhere. Um, I personally, as a black woman, felt that it was very traumatic to see all of that. So I became, like, extremely upset about it. So one day I just, like, woke up and I said I need to, like, vocalize my feelings. And I need to, um, you know, try to make some sort of a difference. I don't know how to start it, but I need to do something. So I went to CVS. I got markers and poster board and I just sat in my room and I just started writing posters and uh, when it came time I let my housemates know that hey I'm on my way to Confusion Corner where Richmond Road and Jamestown Road meets and I decided that uh, we decided that we were going to stand out there and you know um, make our voices heard and um, chant just like just vocalize those feelings that I was talking about had a professor walk up Um, with his family so it was just basically like the five or six of us out there just standing alone Um, that's how it all started I mean May 30th and now we're on our I think 22nd consecutive protest so yeah it's been going around roughly five months I think so yeah so had you been involved in like social justice or advocacy before like what sort of made you like the pioneer of these protests at Confusion Corner um, like I said, like it all just like it started with um, me just getting upset. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I would consider myself a very um, vocal person and an advocate for speaking out for people who are um, just like marginalized communities and people who need someone to speak out for them. Um, big proponent for helping others. So and also vocalizing that. Um, it's just something that's always been um, in how I've been raised. And, um, yeah, that's how I <laughs> decided to do that. So from that first protest, now you've had, what, 22, you said. How have you seen those evolve? You said, like, the first one had, like, five people there. But now I know you have a ton of people coming to a lot of the protests. Like, what has that been like? How have those been evolving? So um, with numbers, they've been evolving. Um, they kind of go up and down. Mm. As we've um, been protesting, I know that it started with a five. Um, from then, I think like within a month, there was at least like 50, 75 people. Oh, there. wow. And then it went down again. Mm. Um, 
and then it went back up to maybe 150 and then it went to like pushing 200 like even when um Brianna Taylor's um like I said like the numbers definitely um raised tremendously after the decision was made after Brianna Taylor's case and not um sentencing the men that were responsible for her death right so um I've seen a, a, a pattern of students wanting to be involved when it's in the news mm-hmm. and then not necessarily um, wanting, to, it, wanting to be involved when it isn't. So it's one of the things that I and the people that are out there um, chanting and like organizing with me try to emphasize that in order to be anti-racist, um, it's something that you, it's a, it's a decision, it's a self-decision that you make every day. It's not something you do just because everyone else is doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. it's You're making the decision to try to make another um, black person's life better by you solely your actions. It's making the decision to see the norm and saying, I'm not going to stand for that any longer in order to make a change. And now that's just like, not as large scale, but that's what it takes in order to, you know, make that larger difference. Have you seen student attitudes on campus change in regards to like racial justice, equity, things like that because of all the protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, things that have been happening this summer? So it's kind of been a little difficult um, to gauge where um, exactly some people stand in all of this. Um, when that comes with um, just students, that comes with administration, that comes with um, anyone in this time, people in power, just because it's a hashtag and it's very popular mm. doesn't necessarily mean that people believe it. Yeah. So I've seen changes um, within, well, seen like through social media because we're not really that much in person. But um, I've seen a lot of advocacy like with, um, groups on campus, mainly um, groups dedicated to people of color, wanting to like speak out and like see changes made in different areas. But then I also see people, um, predominantly white, like groups on campus. I would say maybe like sorority life or fraternity yeah. life or um, just different other organizations. And some I know are very genuine, but some like I just need like it, it's important that we continue to push this because if it isn't pushed will they still make these actions so as somebody who's there like every week in these protests organizing these protests do you see a lot of that from maybe student orgs as like performative do you see that as genuine like how how are your reactions to anything like that um i i challenge (laughs) i challenge everyone out there not to be performative like going back Mm -hmm. to that last question um that's the fear in everything is always staying clear of performative actions and just looking past everything and, you know, looking for those actual, you know, actions to take towards dismantling racism in every space that there are. So um, I've definitely seen um, individuals coming out there that are extremely passionate and want to do whatever they can in their lives and in their communities to see that change happen but as invested as I am there 
I, I just can't afford to just trust that they're um, going to, you know, they're there because they they actually yeah. want to be there. Or um, sometimes I get like kind of frustrated because I am out there protesting and I don't hear everyone, you know, yeah. chanting. And sometimes I feel like, you know, sometimes there are people who are out there because they feel like they are supposed to be out there, yeah. but not necessarily because they want to. So that's just something that I constantly like reiterate over and over again, that it is a decision within the individual to stand up for what's right, though you know you're supposed to. So as you've been out there protesting like every week, have you had anybody, have you had any backlash from the William and Mary community, from the Williamsburg community? What has the reaction been? Um, backlash um, can be seen as many different things. Mm. Um, often head nods, thumbs down, mm. middle fingers. It wasn't all, our protests weren't always um, as stationary as they are now. Um, that That's because of the 10 person, you know, COVID mm. rule mm-hmm. that um, William and Mary Healthy Together created. But um, we used to start at Confusion Corner stay there for roughly 30 minutes, go to cheese shop, like right in front of the cheese shop area and like spread out within like in between tables and in front of cheese shop, kind of lecture to them for maybe 30 minutes Mm. and then march to the Capitol and back and we would be done. It was like two hours long. That was when we had the most backlash and that they were coming from people, just ordinary um, people passing by that would say things like um, black lives don't matter, um, all lives matter, um, just basically discrediting our, our movement and what we're you know speaking on. Um, we even had one incident when we were marching and from the Capitol, we had just left the Capitol because we usually would like debrief there. Um, we were marching back to end and there were a group of people that decided that they wanted to follow us as we were marching back and they were just chanting in opposition to what we were, you know, speaking on. Oh, wow. So um, a lot of what they were saying is saying that we were like anti-American. Um, they were, they even like kind of stopped and we stopped with them just to like um i don't know hear what they were saying but um it it turned into like kind of a standoffish type thing so we're like yelling back and forth at each other and we're basically lined up in the middle of dog street and um they're yelling at us unmasked like just like Uh. yeah um spit coming out of their mouths not like directly spitting on us but like it's like very unsanitary without them having masks on and during a pandemic so they were um that's just one incident um of many 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 incidents like i had people laugh at us just like openly laugh i mean that's like nothing but like uh, the many things that have um occurred regarding backlash is like very minuscule compared to, like, the many things that have happened to people in the past that decide to speak out. So, I mean, we hold our composure and we, we do what we need to do. <laughs> so sort of in the face of, like, those kind of dangerous situations from, you know, the vitriol from the Williamsburg community, but you're still doing it every week, like, what 
helps you persevere? Like what keeps you going in this? I used to say at 10 a.m. every protest I would get ready and like get all my stuff together and I would sit and even like ask myself I would question myself why am I doing this like why are we are we still doing this and anyway I would just like you know get up and go in go out anyway and um it's the random comments and the random words that are like sent our way to help encourage us Mm -hmm. um I had a um young lady on campus call me and thank me for a particular sign that she drove past that um, resonated with her. Mm. And um, that meant something because she said that, you know, sometimes in the William Mary community, it doesn't necessarily feel as welcoming to be within the community that she was in and see a sign like that. So um, it's, it's small comments like that that, like, continue to, like, drive us because what we're doing is not large scale at all. It, it, it kind of is, like, compared to, like, just making the individual decision, like, to just be anti-racist. But, like, yeah, we're making um, our voices heard within the administration and the William and Mary community, but we're changing someone else's life, and we're making someone feel welcome. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, from that, that is just, it's, it's big. That means something. So there's like, if you're going to help somebody, then might as well just like, you know, keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're sort of talking about the little, like the, the small scale interactions that you've been having, but I know you also mentioned that you've had an impact on the William and Mary administration. I think you've had a, a, a meeting with Catherine Rowe. Is that correct? Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, over the summer, um, a lot of things, a lot of petitions were being put out, um, just circling around the William and Mary community. And next thing you know, like... I'm in a group with maybe one, two, five or six individuals, and we're, like, in a working group to say, what do we need to do on campus to make sure to ensure that, like, Black Lives Matter? Right. So we came up with a list of um, changes that we felt that needed to happen, like, you know, like, education, educating the William Mary students of William Mary's past, like, um, law enforcement, um statues and building names and um that definitely was a an experience to go through with you know speaking of like developing like that very list like knowing we're passionate about it putting in the time and effort and pushing towards administration um and speaking on that after that meeting with Catherine Rowe and um the other people in the working group, I realized that the most you can do with creating change is working from within and not necessarily going directly to the head. We've worked with going to the head initially. Mm. And then we realized that um, when we didn't necessarily see the um, initial change that we wanted to, we realized that we needed to work with within Mm -hmm. and I think I've learned that throughout all of this is working within and working with like your small core people and growing like with that kind of like along the lines of grassroots so like working with that um and then growing Mm -hmm. so we took a step back after like presenting to Catherine Rowe um the things that need to change and 
as an athlete, I just took a step back and said, what is this platform? Like, how can I use this? I don't have any position of leadership in William Mary Athletics, but I, I have a voice and I can make a like I can say speak up during these times in this space. So I looked at William Mary Athletics and I looked at all the issues that have taken place in the past with um, black student athletes and I assessed the things that needed to change. So I wrote up a letter to the athletic director and every head coach and all of William Mary Athletics, their um, administration. And I was, uh, I had a couple people who actually have, um, I would say leadership positions within Mm -hmm. athletics as student athletes. I had them sign on, um, like SAC representatives, team captains, also friends of mine. I had them sign on with me, you know, to kind of like, you know, push my message. Mm, Yeah. So, um, we looked and we said, we don't have study hall anymore. We don't have academy anymore. Um, we don't have, um, a mentorship program for these like um, black athletes that are coming in here that don't necessarily know how to like survive William and Mary. Right. Mental health counselor. There's been many, um, we don't have a particular um, mental health counselor like specified for William and Mary athletics. And um, the last item, I think there's four items. Yeah. The last item was we need more academic advisors. Um, for all the student athletes that we have, we had like two and now we have one. <laughs> so it's like really interesting when you hear about other schools and the amount of like academic support that they have. And like here, like things just like gradually trickled off. Yeah, I and within that letter, something that I always say and I always reiterate over and over, and over again is when we lack resources, black lives suffer. So um just wanted to like you know let that drive me within athletics and yeah so how is that how is that letter received by athletics have you seen any of the changes that you propose to be implemented um I've seen some changes but I definitely um just don't want to ever get complacent into Mm -hmm. wherever we are because we can always be better and to say the least this school has a tremendous amount this school has a lot to of fixing to do Whether it's um, with transparency or just supporting people of color in any space and um, black students, we have many, many years in doing that. So I never get complacent in whatever happens, like any um, type of system been put in place from that. Um, Study hall, uh, we're not really in person didn't um you can't really like come back unless they can find a way to do that academy was brought back from the letter um mentorship programs have been developed um i know that they're working with alumni right now to develop one um there is a ongoing student athlete mentorship program that has been developed like kind of like working with um older student athletes and um, freshmen and transfers mm. just so they know what the ropes are and just right. like can know how to network once they leave mental health wise we do not have a mental health counselor but um, they seem to be providing resources um, more to um, athletics or just reiterating some that haven't really been pushed but a mental health counselor is 100 percent needed and necessary 
with the academic advisor um, bullet point, I think that um, there's been a lot of hiring, like um, freezing. So they, uh, I guess I, they just, with like COVID and everything. So I don't know if they're necessarily doing that right now. But yeah, shout out to Lene. She's holding it down. That one individual, <laughs> all those athletes right now. But yeah, that didn't really change. But I just think academy and um, the mentorship program is like taking off. But we do need mental health help. Yeah. Um, so you talked a little bit about moving away from the sort of like high level administrative response and more to like a grassroots movement. But I also know that like as the Black Lives Matter protests were happening across the country this summer, William and Mary kind of sent us like maybe a couple of emails about it. And I know a lot of students felt like that wasn't adequate. That wasn't enough. That wasn't a good enough response from administration. Yeah. Um, William and Mary has has to, I, I reiterate this in many meetings I've, I'm in with um, administrators, faculty, students. William and Mary has to learn how to let go. And I think that it's stopping them from being more transparent and making real change for these black students. We compromise too much with alumni. We compromise too much with donors in order. And I mean, I understand this school is a business, but I mean, we're here to learn and we're here to be in this community. So creating this space so that we feel welcome is extremely important and yeah, I agree with um, the many students that didn't feel like those statements were adequate enough. Like we, it's important that we stand on what we um, we say, and we're very explicit in saying that we don't condone racism in any of its forms, whether it be blatant, which I think that they decided to take the stance on of we don't accept blatant racism here, yeah. like going around, you know saying like um, racial slurs and um, outwardly being difficult with people of color and making it th their experience here bad. Like, of course, like, no, I mean, a majority of individuals, I would say, wouldn't go around doing that right. on this campus. But it's the systems and what's embedded in those systems that they won't let go of. Mm. So, I mean, they they have a large amount of change that needs to be done. But, yeah. So if you were, like, in charge of William & Mary, if you were, instead of Catherine Rowe, if you are running the school, like, what would be the big, large-scale, like, systematic changes that you would like to see implemented to support black students? I think well, one of the first ways I would stop is I would stop <laughs> using black students and people of color on this campus as tokens i would stop using them as um and asking them about their traumas time and time again as black students in order to say that's it like we've done what we needed to do in order to make sure that this campus is inclusive um ho holding um kumbaya sessions of like let's talk about our feelings with the black kids in order to check off the diversity and inclusion check mark mm -hmm. and you know I mean I, I say it time I say this time and time again that you make it so we start having a lot more like black students on this campus through time but what what happens when we get here 
Like, why are we going through the things that we're going through in the, in the first place? Like, what what needs to be changed at that level in order so that this campus really is inclusive? And one of the main, another thing that I've been, um, I speak to that one professor that always, you know, uh, that was out there that very first time I protest. I'm still in contact with him. But one of the main topics that we've been talking about that needs to change with William and Mary, the I think across the board is we need to stop looking at diversity and inclusion as an add-on. Mm. It's it's imperative because it sh- it should be the standard. As high as we hold honor here, we created the honor like um, the honor code and you know everything of that nature. Um, we're very prestigious. We're in holding how this campus like. Um, just how who who this campus is, we hold it up to a high standard in um, saying that it's it's national importance in history, but we don't care as much about diversity and inclusion, and we don't care about our black students mm-hmm. like we care about the honor code, like and at the end of the day, these are students that come here that are being mistreated day in and day out. Like, it shouldn't have taken George Floyd being murdered and Breonna Taylor to be murdered and the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, the movement itself, it should not have taken that to question, why am I walking past a statue of Thomas Jefferson every day? Hmm. Why am I walking past every, almost every um, building, if not every building in the Sunken Gardens or on campus almost every building on campus that's named after a racist or a slave uh, like a slave owning male like that's one of the things that swings it back to performative actions like why was this never you know discussed building names being changed so um these statues being removed so but they're still standing and the buildings are still up and it's priorities, mm. you know, so we'll see what, what actually happens. Yeah. So do you think because of all the social change that's going on and has been going on since the summer, since the murder of George Floyd, do you think the people on campus are listening to black voices more than they were before? Or are they just sort of, you know, doing these performative things and then not listening anymore? Well, some of, I'm just going to be frank, some um, some groups and individuals on campus haven't even conversed with, uh, don't converse with black people on the day-to-day basis. They haven't made their friend groups inclusive. They've chosen not to educate themselves their entire lives. So um, some of it may be feelings of I should be doing this. Um, how, how do I get involved? Um, I think it's been um, very... It's, it's been very um, apparent through all this um, white guilt. There's, I mean, there's been a listening ear, but it's like I said, like it takes like the individual wanting to change and wanting to hear and, you know, like creating that change within themselves and their surrounding areas. Like um, it's, it's interesting that we're having these like conversations on the, on college campuses with people of our age. But like I say all the time, go home, talk to your racist parents. Like it, it, like you need to have these conversations. Like, are you questioning your friends and your friend groups when they say something, 
you know are you having these conversations with your friend groups are you having these dialogues with your friend groups are you you know reading these books with your friends like that you know yeah and so how do you sort of see I feel like William & Mary has a very complicated legacy with this, right? Because like you said, we have statues of people who were enslavers. We have buildings named after those same people. Um, Half the college was built by enslaved people. Do you see William & Mary as having like a unique place in the national dialogue on anti-racism and racial equity? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I've constantly said. If we are the front runners of this country... If you, we are the, uh, we're a public Ivy. We are um, in the, I don't, I don't know if it's top 10, top 20, you know, public universities in the country. Why aren't we making big statements? Why aren't we afraid to be bold? We're always told to like be for the bold. Like why aren't we being bold as we want to? It's because we don't know how to let go. We don't know how to let go of our And that's just racist traditions. And sometimes our alumni like don't know how to let go of their racist, racist beliefs and traditions also. So um, it's about like letting go, (laughs) you know, Um, with the I know the Lemon Project for years has been trying to memorialize the um, enslaved here at this campus, the once enslaved here at this campus. And um it's really interesting that before the these last like five or six months, the Lemon Project has been working, but it was never, no one questioned how we would be memorializing enslaved people, right. but having statues and building names of people who enslaved them right next to them. Like, no, that was never a question. Mm-hmm. So I just really think that that is, you know, inappropriate for one, like highly disrespectful for black students. But like, where's the the balance, you know? I mean, there there's like some sort of like balance that they feel like they need to like keep and there's, yeah, letting go again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, just sort of getting back to, to you personally, as you're sort of in the center of this like campus discourse on anti-racism, on race, how has that affected you personally? I know you said like sort of before the interview that you've had to say no to a lot of things to sort of like promote your own self-care and like mental health. Yeah. How has that affected you? I mean, I definitely like it's, it's, it's taking a lot of being like selfish with my time, but at the same time, like it's, yeah, you can't be selfish, like, because this isn't about me. Um, it's about the larger scale, like, or just like I said before with, um, just like impact. So I, I I think about myself when I feel like I need to, Mm. but, um, like, and also like I, a lot of times I don't, um, I battle with who I should be speaking to. Like, I'm, I'm glad I could get on this call today, but like, I just never want to be like held up that much because all I did was just you know speak up on how I felt inside and it can be done with anyone so I just like being turned into some like individual like specifically for anti-racism is is like I mean I appreciate like the recognition of what like I've been doing but I just cannot like reiterate how much like you just can't like fall back on that like you just got to keep going so yeah 
And I know you talked a little bit about that one professor who came to the the first protest on Dog Street and has sort of been like supporting you throughout this whole process. If there are any like professors listening who might have black students who are or, or students who are very involved with these issues, like how could those professors best support those students? Um, I think support comes from many different ways and avenues. Um, it, it comes from self like caring for their students, like asking them if they're okay in these times, um, acknowledging that they're happening, acknowledging that the place that they stand in um, these times and being very um, you know specific and and speaking on them, listening, a lot of listening educating themselves in order to be equipped with um, the tasks that they have. Um, educators play a large role in just the fight against racism. I myself want to be an educator. Um, yeah. Um, so like when I say be equipped, there's been many essays written. Oh, I know James Baldwin is one of them. Um, he wrote an essay on the importance of like education and like teaching and just being the one, you know, educating your students and the role that you play and doing that. But it just takes a lot of self-education yourself and listening and being that support system, you know, but like support comes from many, many different ways and avenues and different situations that like my mind's racing, just like thinking about ways, but yeah, that's how I can condense it the best way I can. Yeah. So you slipped in there that you wanted to be an educator yourself. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've always like loved kids. Like I've always just like been a um, proponent for um, child education. Um, growing up, I wasn't necessarily. Um, I don't know. I feel like I didn't have the best education experience having the with like with teachers, and um, with teachers and even like creating uh, like these safe spaces in classrooms like I felt like I was I was often like felt as if I was an outsider within my classrooms you know like bullied and all that you know all that stuff yeah. so um teaching was never a question when I came to college like I was just like you know into like the STEM field because it's just something that like you know your parents push on you for years and then next thing you know you're like oh I don't like this yeah. <laughs> so I'm starting taking classes I'm like yeah this is not for me so I'm like working through kinesiology, you know, just like kind of found my way through that major in public health. And I'm like, okay, I like this, but I still want to work with kids. So how do I do that? Got into an internship with the student health um, initiative program, basically implementing, um, getting active in the classroom mm-hmm. and like changing lessons to fit like public health. Not necessarily, like, when I tell people that I want to be an educator and I have a public health degree, they're like, oh, do you want to be a PE teacher? I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, nothing wrong with PE teachers. Like, absolutely nothing wrong with physical education teachers. But that's just not what I want to do. Like, there's so many different avenues that you could go with that. Right. So um, I looked at the Student Health Initiative Program, SHIP program, and I was like, you know, this is something I want to do. So I started thinking about how I could, like, you know, be uh, – um, like implement these in the classrooms. I was like, why don't I just become an elementary school teacher? So from that, from then on my um, junior year, first semester, I constantly was trying to get into the classroom, like trying to get um, experience with um, educators time and time again. So um, here I am 
about to apply to the School of Ed here. Oh. Let's hope I get in. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's that's how I that's how I ended up what I wanted to do. <laughs> that's so cool. That's amazing. Thank you. Awesome. So if somebody wanted to perhaps join one of the protests, where could they find them? Um, like I said, like <laughs> from the beginning, we've been kind of like working within, but from there, um, there has been loads of um individuals outside that just repost and repost and repost so um i guess like you can follow me on twitter um q u e e n f a d r i a n queen phadrian that's my middle name adrian um i guess um on my instagram underscore fee hayes f e hayes um that's like basically the route we go with like getting our message out like I post every week and people look at that and then my friends post and we you know go through like just retweets and likes and next thing you know it's like 200 people out there so (laughs) yeah awesome and so can you just say like the time and place of the protest in case somebody wants to like join um the protests are every week at noon at the intersection of Jamestown Road and Richmond Road Call it Confusion Corner, as most know. Um, we're there every noon. Um, you meet there, get a sign, and stand on an X. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming into the studio with us today. No problem, no problem. It's glad to be with all of you today. With the end of the semester upon us, the Black Lives Matter protests have concluded for 2020, but there's always more to do. Research racism, donate to individuals in need, talk to your friends and family about inequality. For information about future protests, check out Felicia Hayes on Instagram at at F-E Hayes. That's underscore F-E-H-A-Y-E-S. Thank you so much to Felicia for coming on the podcast today. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud.